0: Well good morning. morning. You guys, Easter is right around the corner. And it is gonna be the best kind of Easter where you can bury Easter eggs for kids under several feet of snow. Right? You can send them out there, they'll look forever. They'll still be discovering eggs in June when finally the snow melts. It's gonna be terrific. By all means, there's a number of different Easter activities you can take part in. We'd love to have you for those. And you heard earlier about the baptisms that will be taking place on Easter Sunday as well. Who's ready to meet with the Lord in his word and worship him in his word this morning, right? You can open with me to Romans chapter 9. Last week, Jason got us started in the third part of our Romans Road series where we're looking at Romans 9 through 11. I thought it would be helpful for us this morning if we did a brief review of what we saw in Romans 1 through 8. Part of what we saw in Romans 1 through 8 is that we are sinful and disobedient people. We were made to be like God, but we rebelled against those purposes. And so we've sinned and we've fallen short of the glorious purpose for which he made us. And Romans says that because of that, what we rightfully deserve is death or separation from God and all that is good forever. But God, because of his rich mercy and his goodness, has promised salvation for those who place their faith in him. And we saw the promise in chapters 4 and 5 of justification, that Jesus takes our wrong and our punishment on the cross, and we get his righteousness credited to our account, so we're declared righteous in the courtroom of God. Then in chapters 6 and 7, we saw God's promise to those who have faith of sanctification. God's Holy Spirit comes to dwell in all those who've been justified, and they become more and more like Jesus day in and day out in their lives. And then in chapter 8, we saw his good promise of glorification. God is making all of creation new and he's making his children new along with it so that we will dwell in this eternal inheritance in heaven where we'll be with Jesus and we'll be like Jesus in our day-to-day lives. What great promises of salvation for us. Justification, sanctification, glorification. And chapter 8 ended with this amazing and beautiful promise. Know in all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Amen and amen to that. But the critic says, how can you trust those promises? How, How can you trust those promises? After all, God made promises to Abraham and his offspring. And now God isn't working with the Israelites anymore. He's working with the church. And so the critic says, how can you trust God's good promises of salvation when he wasn't faithful to his promises to Abraham and his offspring? The Israelites are cut off and he's working through the church right now. And all of Romans 9 through 11 is meant to answer that critical question how can we trust his promises when he hasn't been faithful to the promises he made to Abraham and his offspring? Of course, what we saw last week is that is a faulty premise in the critic's question. The, when we get to Romans chapter 11, what we are going to see is God is going to fulfill every promise to Israel. But more than that, what we saw last week is God is absolutely in the process of fulfilling his promises to Abraham and Abraham's offspring. It's just that his offspring are not determined by DNA, they're determined by faith, right? His offspring are not determined by DNA, they're determined by faith. And so last week, Paul said, hey, remember Isaac and Ishmael? They both had Abraham's DNA, But they won't, both weren't children of the promise. This isn't about DNA. This is about being a child of faith. And God is still fulfilling his promises to Abraham right now through his people of faith, like you. What a blessing that is. He is fulfilling his promises through people like you. Then Paul talked about in last week's passage that this pattern of Choosing someone and not choosing someone else, that has always been God's way. And so we saw in last week's passage, he chose Isaac, but not Ishmael, Jacob, but not Esau, Moses, but not Pharaoh, Israel, but not Egypt. And right now, he's chosen to work through the church and not Israel. And Paul says this idea of choosing one and not working through another has always been God's way of working as we walk through the Old Testament. Which brings up the natural question that we looked at last week, is God unjust in this? If God is choosing some and not choosing others, then is there injustice in God in this? Paul answered that question in verses we looked at last week. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in, on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Is God unjust? God says here, You don't want justice, you want mercy. You you don't want justice. What is justice? For those who have sinned, for those who have rebelled against God, for those whose rightful judgment is punishment and the wrath of God poured out upon sin. He says, you don't want justice. Justice for every person who has ever lived is punishment from God. He says, this isn't about justice. This is about God's goodness and showing some mercy because no one deserves that mercy. Uh, let's, Let's say that I'm a judge. And as a judge, over the course of a year, a hundred people come before me who have all committed the same terrible crime. I don't know what it is, but they've committed some terrible crime. And I sentence each of those hundred people who come before me over the course of that year to pay a fine of $1 million because of the terrible crime that they have committed. Then, for whatever reason, as the judge... I take $25 million of my own money, and I pay the fine for 25 of those 100 people. Have I been unjust to the other 75? No, the other 75, they are receiving justice. They are receiving the due penalty for what they have done. What they're getting is exactly justice. Paul says there's nothing unjust in what God is doing, there's something tremendously merciful in what God is doing, in choosing to pay for those 25. Paul says the same is true of us. None of us deserve to be chosen by God. Moses didn't, he was a murderer. Jacob didn't, he was a liar and a cheat. Israel didn't, they worshipped idols the moment they got out of Egypt. None of us deserve, if it was dependent upon what he calls here human will or exertion, we would all get justice, which is eternal punishment of separation from God and all that is good. He says, "You don't want justice, you want mercy. And this isn't about justice. This is about God's great mercy. Which brings us to the natural question that starts our passage for today, and that is, oh sorry, it isn't about justice, it's about mercy. If God chooses, is it fair to punish people? If God's the one making the choices here, then is it fair to punish people? If He chooses Moses and not Pharaoh, if He if He chooses Jacob and not, is it fair for Him to punish people for things that He has determined will happen? You will say to me then, why does He still find fault? For no one can resist His will. Joseph's brothers. They beat Joseph and sold him into slavery. Later on, we're told they did precisely what God had determined was going to happen in order to save thousands upon thousands of people. So if they did what God had determined was going to happen, should they be held responsible for beating their brother and selling him into slavery? Judas, Pontius Pilate, the Jewish leaders, they did precisely what God had foreordained was going to happen before the foundations of the earth. If God had determined that it was going to happen, should they be held responsible for the fact that it did happen? God said before Moses went down to Egypt, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. When when Pharaoh chooses to harden his heart, should he be held responsible for that? If God already determined that it was going to happen? Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? The critic here says to God, explain yourself. Explain yourself, God. Why are you finding fault if people can't resist your will? What what is going on here? Now, part of what we saw last week and what we will see in greater detail in a few minutes is that people are making legitimate decisions for which they are responsible while God is also determining all that will take place. And God's determinative election and people's genuine choices for which they are responsible run side by side throughout the scriptures. We're going to see that in greater detail in just a few minutes, but that is not how God answers the critic in this passage. God's answer to the critic is actually very different than that. God isn't going to explain how he governs the universe in ways that are beyond our understanding. Instead, he's going to explain that if we want God to answer to us, when we, then we have the roles in the universe twisted. If we think God should answer to us and the way, things, the way that we think things should happen, then we have the roles in the universe twisted. Verses 20 and 21. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of it the same lump for one vessel, I'm sorry, same lump, one vessel for honor and the other vessel for dishonorable use? Here, God uses a picture that was first used in the book of Isaiah of the potter and the pot. And he asks us to imagine The pot complaining to the potter about what the potter is making. I want you to just think about that for a minute. The pot complaining to the potter about what the potter is making. That can never actually happen, can it? Because the pot is so limited in capacity compared to the potter. The potter has the ability to think, the ability to communicate. The potter is creative. The pot has no ability to think, no ability to communicate, no ability towards creativity. It's a pot. And so it has no ability to say anything to the potter, let alone object about what it's being made for. There is this tremendous difference in capacity between the potter and the pot. But that difference in capacity is small compared to the difference in capacity between infinite, almighty God and His creatures like you and me. God says, if you think that I need to answer how I run the universe according to your ways of doing things, then you have the roles in the universe twisted. And He wants to make sure that we get that untwisted in our mind. If you've been reading through the church's uh, Bible reading plan, then you just finished the book of Job. And in the book of Job, Job gets caught up in this cosmic interplay. And as a part of it, he winds up suffering. And throughout the book of Job, Job keeps saying the same thing over and over again. If only God would come and stand before me, I would be proven right. If only God would come and stand before me, I could call him to account for why things are happening the way that they are. And at the end of the book of Job, God comes to Job. And does God explain all of those cosmic events that have led to his suffering? Does God explain why he allowed them and allowed it to go on? What does God say to Job? He says to Job, did you create the universe? And then he walks through creation, step after step after step. Did you make this? Did you make this? Do you sustain all of this? Does all of this rest upon you? He says, Job, you've got this twisted if you think that I need to do things according to your counsel. I'm the creator, you're the creation. I'm the one who holds accountable. You're the one who is accountable. I'm the judge. And you're the one who is to be judged. Anytime we think that God needs to live up to our standards, we're involved in idolatry of self. Anytime we say, God, you need to do things in a way that makes sense to me, then we're involved in idolatry of the self, where we've made our standard the highest objective and are telling God he needs to live up to that standard. Right, that is an idolatry of self. And what God wants us to understand more than anything as we look at this passage is he's the potter. We're the pot. We don't hold God accountable according to our standards. He holds us accountable according to his. And we can only be spiritually alive and involved in genuine worship when we get on our knees before him and recognize his greatness and our smallness recognize that we're to be held accountable to His standard. He's not to be held accountable to our standards. He's the judge. He's the maker. He is the creator. He wants us to make sure we don't get the the roles twisted. Now, the next question that comes up as Paul is walking through this is, is a natural one if we understand that God has chosen some people and He hasn't chosen others, and that question is, Why does God allow those people that he hasn't chosen to continue on? He knows who's not chosen. What they deserve is instant punishment the moment they first sin. The moment they first sin before a holy God, what they deserve is instant punishment, instant separation from him, instant wrath of God poured out upon them. And yet God in his long-suffering allows those who are not chosen, who continue in rebellion and sin, to continue on in this life. Why? Why doesn't he deal with them immediately? Verses 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God is just and He is holy and He will punish sin, but He hasn't done so immediately. Why? In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of His mercy, so that His mercy and His grace shine all the more in comparison to the rebellion and sinfulness of the world and those still in it. When I was in my first year of seminary, I worked that year uh, for a company called Service Master of St. Paul. And at Service Master, we did a lot of uh, what what Roe would call dirty jobs. Uh, One of the dirty jobs that we did is we were often brought in to clean up what were called garbage houses. Somebody from the county would come in to check on someone, They would find that the house was a disaster and we would be called in in order to do a cleaning job. And there was one job in particular where there were five of us who cleaned a house for a week in order to get it clean. When we first walked into the house, I was able to stand on the garbage in the living room and put my palms flat against the eight-foot ceiling. There was that much garbage and stuff crawling all in it. There were items in the kitchen that had grown things that had connected with other items in the kitchen. I got into a bee's nest up in the master closet and got stung multiple times. I mean, it was unbelievable how dirty this particular house was. And every day when I was working at that house, I would come home and I would immediately shower. And then I would sit down on my couch in my living room and I would look around at the clean house around me and I would delight in its cleanliness. In a way that I'd never delighted in the cleanliness of my house before, I would look around and I would go, oh, Erica, this is divine. This is amazing. Because compared to that, that garbage house, my house shown. I mean it's it sparkled by comparison. And, and what God is saying here is these, these objects of wrath, those who are still in their rebellion, who are not among the chosen, they are remain here in part so that the glory and majesty and mercy of God's salvation shines all the more by comparison. The beauty of His salvation shines all the more. By comparison, what mercy he shows. And we can see that mercy so plainly on display in his saving of the Gentiles. The next verse is, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Why has God chosen currently to work through a church made up from predominantly of Gentiles? It is because the Gentiles have earned it, isn't it? Absolutely not. It is because of his great mercy. Because of his great mercy. And Paul here says, if you don't think that God has been faithful to his promises because he's currently working through a church as those who are descendants of Abraham rather than through the Israelites... Then you haven't read the Old Testament because this is God's plan all along, that a people who are not his people would be called his people. This was God's design from from the very beginning. God's mercy can be seen in the salvation of the Gentiles within the church. And God's mercy can be seen on full display in the saving of a Jewish remnant. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Why why is God still working with a remnant from Israel when Israel rejected their Messiah? Shouldn't they be completely and entirely cut off? Oh, because God is merciful. And he continues to work with a remnant of Israel, even though they rejected their Messiah. He continues to work with a remnant from Israel that is now a part of his believing church. And this has been God's plan again, as we see here from the Old Testament, from the very beginning. Now, in this chapter which has largely been about God's sovereign determination of how things will operate and God's choices, he concludes with a couple of verses that point to the genuine choices we make and the outcomes that are a part of that. And so we close with these verses. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. They chose to go in this direction. But now there are consequences for those choices that they have made. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God chose the Gentiles to graft them in to what he was doing with Israel. God has chosen to cut off Israel, but to bring in a remnant from that nation into what he is currently doing. And yet we see here that among Gentiles and Jews, they have made genuine choices that have led them down these paths. God has chosen, and they have chosen. And that is what we see throughout the scriptures. That God has genuinely determined and elected what will happen throughout history, and at the same time, people are making genuine choices for which they are fully responsible for before God and determining outcomes. Because this is so very difficult for us to understand we tend to abandon one or the other because we can't hold this tension of and, right? Our God is a God of and, but because we live in a physical and finite universe that makes him and his working so difficult to understand, we tend to be people of or. Let, let me explain what I mean to you. Uh, my son and I over the course of this last summer, we built a fire pit in a hill in our yard. Uh, we did a lot of digging. There was a lot of dirt, a lot of sand. And if I told my son, I want you to fill that wheelbarrow 100% completely full of dirt. And then a couple of minutes later, I said to him, now I want you to fill that wheelbarrow 100% completely filled with sand. Chances are my son would dump out the dirt in order to fill it with sand. Why? Because within the physical and finite world that we live in, you cannot fill that wheelbarrow completely and totally full of dirt and completely and totally filled with sand. Right? Our universe doesn't work like that. And so we tend to be people of ore when it comes to many of these things because we are used to living within a physical and finite universe. We are physical and finite creatures. God... Is spiritual and infinite, and he is not bound by those same things that bind our universe and bind our mind. And so, our God is not a God of or in the way that we often want to make him. He is a God of and in a way that is spectacular to us and our mind. And this is not a side item of our faith, this is fundamental to the primary tenets that we hold as Christians. So when you think of the hypostatic union, what is that? The nature of Jesus, right? When you think of the nature of Jesus, we ask, is Jesus fully God or is Jesus fully man? I mean, it can't be both. You can't put 100% and 100% in a single person. That's 200%. That doesn't work. Within our physical and finite universe, it is impossible to fully God and fully man in one person. It just doesn't work that way. We either want to go 100% this way or 100% this way or 50-50 or something like that. But what the scripture affirms over and over again is, nope, fully God, fully man, within the same person. When heresy arises, it's because we struggle with this and, and we want to make it into an or that aligns with the physical and finite universe that we're a part of. And so we're like, okay, we'll just say he's fully God and not man, or we'll say he's fully man and not God. Or we'll try and mix the percentages somehow. But that isn't what the Scripture teaches us. The words of Scripture. Are the words that we're studying this morning the words of God? Or are they the words of Paul? Right? We would affirm they are 100% the words of God. And they are also 100% the words of Paul. You'll even hear me as I'm up here preaching at different times say, God says, and at other times say, well, what Paul writes here is, right? Because we affirm it is completely God's words that we are studying this morning, and it is completely the words of the Apostle Paul. Again, heresy arises when we want to take this beautiful and and make it into an or. The Trinity, is God one or is he three? Which is it? I hope you get the idea by now. Right? Because of the world that we live in and the finiteness of our own minds, we want to make it an or here. And almost every heresy about the Trinity arises from or. He is one, but not three. He is three, but not one. Uh, he's one who becomes different parts. At different, almost everything arises from our inability to be able to sit and say, maybe I don't fully understand how this works. It's beyond the finite... Uh, and physical universe and my understandings within. But God is spiritual and He is infinite and He is able to exist and He is able to do beyond what I understand. And in this passage, part of what I want us to see is that when it comes to choices and determination, it is an and. God is both fully determining all that is going to take place and electing it from His sovereign purposes, and at the same time, people are making genuine choices for which they are fully responsible and determine outcomes in their lives. I believe we see this beautifully illustrated just with the people that He has mentioned in Romans chapter 9. Just think about the people that He's used as an illustration in Romans chapter 9. Jacob and Esau, was God responsible for determining the outcome of their lives? Yes. What does it say here? Uh, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Clearly, God chose their paths for them before they were born. He elected those paths. But we also see in the scripture that they made genuine choices that led them down this path. Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Why did Esau lose his place as the firstborn? Because he didn't value it and he sold his place as the firstborn for a single meal because of his choices. It's not an or, it's an and. God determined and their choices determined what was going to take place here. Well, who else does he use as an illustration here in Romans 9? How about Moses and Pharaoh? Did God choose who was going to be elected among Moses and Pharaoh, Romans 9, 15 through 17. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Clearly, Scripture teaches that God chose Moses and he chose Pharaoh to play their very specific parts in this cosmic drama throughout history. But the Scripture also teaches that Moses and Pharaoh made genuine choices for which they are responsible that led them down these paths. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What's the next word? Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Here, Moses is lifted up as someone who made the right choice, as an example for us, and we are told, make that right choice as well. A genuine choice that leads down these paths. The same is true of Pharaoh. God says about Pharaoh, I am going to harden his heart. Then we read in Exodus 8.15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. As we read throughout Exodus and we see God say, I'm going to harden his heart and Pharaoh hardens his heart and God hardens his heart and then Pharaoh hardens his heart. I don't believe at that point we're to understand that they're kind of going through an alternating cycle. My understanding is that that we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart because both are taking place at the same time. God is determining that Pharaoh will have a hardened heart and Pharaoh is also genuinely choosing his own hardened heart for which he is fully responsible. What other examples do we see in Romans chapter 9? How about Israel? Is Israel cut off right now because of God's choosing or because of their choices? Chapter 11, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We're going to see in Romans chapter 11 that God has hardened Israel during this season for the purpose of bringing Gentiles in. We also see in this same chapter, just a few verses earlier, this is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. He says they, they were broken off for their unbelief. And what is the point of him telling us this? So don't you make that same choice towards unbelief. God is choosing and they are choosing and it is leading them down this path. It is both God's choice and their choice. Like with absolutely everything in life, this truth of God's determining and choosing and us making genuine choices for which we are responsible can be most clearly seen at the cross. Uh, At the cross, did did God choose what was going to happen? For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Did God determine what was going to happen at the cross? Yes, before the very foundations of the earth. God had predestined what was going to take place at the cross. Did people also make genuine decisions for which they're fully responsible? Absolutely, which is why Peter preaches in Acts 5, the God of our forefathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Did they make genuine choices for which they're responsible? Absolutely they did. Absolutely they did. Because of the limited capacity of our own understandings, because we live in a world that is governed by things that are physical, we live in a finite world. We tend to want to make all of these things into an or, but in fact, our God is a God of and. He is majestic, he is beyond our capacity for understanding. He governs the universe in ways that we can never fully grasp and never fully understand. <clears throat> I used to uh, I used to understand God's sovereign governance of all that takes place throughout history like a domino chain only the largest domino chain of all time and so at genesis 1 1 the first domino is knocked over and there are billions of dominoes that spread out for miles and miles and god is aligning each and every domino, exactly where it needs to be to hit the next domino so that all of the universe works out according to his plan and according to his sovereign guidance. Billions of dominoes, which he has all perfectly aligned in order to get the next thing to happen. But but I now think that this illustration falls short of the greatness of God and his sovereignty. I think that a a better illustration, harder for us to, to grasp, but a better illustration is of God lining up a giant domino train filled with billions and billions of dominoes throughout history. But those dominoes, which all strike each other perfectly as God has designed, are all also moving around on their own. The dominoes are shifting here and they're they're shifting there. They're moving and making genuine choices about where they're going to be. And yet still, somehow, God in a way that is beyond our capacity for understanding, lines up all of those moving dominoes in a way in which they strike the dominoes they need to strike to bring everything that's going to happen in the universe about to his particular desires. How does he do that? I have no idea. None whatsoever. And I'm so thankful that I don't. Imagine if a a puny little dumb man like myself could understand all of the ways that the almighty and infinite God governed the universe. If I could understand every way that God governed the universe, then chances are that God's made up. Chances are that God is a creation of humanity if we can understand everything about how He functions. But our God is infinite and almighty and He is beyond the capacity of His pots to understand because He's the Creator and we're the creation. He's the judge and we are those who are to be judged, which is why When Paul walks through all of this amazing material about the greatness of our God, he reaches a place in Romans chapter 11. That says 9, but it should say 11. Romans 11, 33 through 35. And these are our theme verses for this study where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who? Or who has been his counselor? Are you kidding me? Or or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Paul is playing in the deep end here of God's sovereignty and determination, of people's genuine choices for which they are responsible. And at the end of this section of Romans, he says, This is amazing. Just stand back and marvel at the greatness of our God who is beyond our understanding. I want to take a couple of minutes and just have you bow your heads and worship God. Worship God who is beyond our capacity. Give Him praise for the fact that we can't fully understand how He works. Give Him honor because who he is and his very nature are beyond our understanding.